Welcome back to episode 24. Mm, I think yeah. it's 24. Of Dark and Creepy Things. With Frank. And Scout. Yay. Yay. I'm Scout. I'm Frank. Yay. Yay. And this is Claudia, who's trying to decide what she wants to do with her life. <laughs> what are you going to do? Are you going to sit down? Are, are you going to sit on the table? What are you doing? Are you going on the couch? What are you doing? Okay, you're back. Okay. So it's my turn. Your turn. And this is a article of an event that I have heard of before and I'm pretty sure one of our favorite YouTubers did this one as well. Yeah. But it was a while ago. It wasn't which, a what's our re- favorite YouTuber? BuzzFeed Unsolved. BuzzFeed Unsolved. Yes, which yes. the new true crime ones are coming out soon. So exciting. Oh, before we get started. Oh, yeah. We thank our Patreons, our patrons from Patreon. Yeah. Yes. Who are they? I don't know. remember them all. <laughs> Well, one's your mother. Oh, yes. Thanks, Bitten by mom. the bum. Bum? <laughs> Bitten by babies! Bitten by the bug Japanese textiles. And like, she can be found on Etsy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Bright Side comic. Yes, the Bright Side comic. Yeah, by A. Francis. That can be found at, I think it's like thebrightsidecomic.com or something. I don't know. Just look yeah, it up. Just Google it. It's definitely Bright Side comic. Yeah. Um... And then we've got our regular listeners. Mm-hmm. We've got Sean, mm-hmm. we've got Sindel, mm-hmm. and we've got Maya. Yay! Hooray! Thank you all. Thank you all. Yeah. Anyway, so back to what I was talking about. Oh, and before and before we go <laughs> to that, uh, if you'd like to be a patron as well, get your name or business or whatever you're doing mentioned, whatever you please. Um, yeah, go on to find us at Patreon forward slash or Righty. And also, you know what would be a huge help for our podcast to get mm. a little bit more listeners? Uh, would be giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Yeah. Or wherever you listen to your podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Give us a rating. Yeah. Share it around. Yeah. Give us a review. All of that stuff. Uh, yeah. Unless it's awful, then don't. Yeah. Yeah. That would Claudia, be cool. Claudia, don't. 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 There we go. Just trying to make sure Claudia doesn't pull down the microphone. Yeah. Um, and I've also got some you know future very soon future projects in the works one of which might be involving this podcast Mm. 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 so that should be should be fun involving this podcast and melbourne yes yes record yeah yes one Okay, after all that, what have you got for us, Frank? Well, this one was featured, I'm pretty sure it was featured on BuzzFeed Unsolved, but like four or five seasons ago, Mm -hmm. for those of you who watch it. So it was a while ago. Um, And I'm excited because their new true crime one's coming out. And I don't like their supernatural ones because ghosts are are stupid. (laughs) Are they stupid or are they scary? They're stupid. Ghosts are stupid. Every time he brings out the fucking spirit box, I'm like, oh my god, it's the fucking spirit box again. This is so (laughs) dumb. Like, and then it's just like you hear a random word like spaghetti. And I was like, oh my god, it's a ghost. It's like, it's... Uh, Anyway, this one's a bit more interesting. It's called the Dyatlov Pass Incident. So, the Dyatlov Pass incident refers to the deaths of nine ski hikers in the northern Ural Mountains of the Soviet Union between the 1st and 2nd of February in 1959, under unclear circumstances. The experienced trekking group, who were all from the Ural Polytechnic Institute, had established a camp on the slopes of 
Klotchsakul in an area that is now named in honour of the group's leader, Igor Dilatov. Mm. During the night, something caused them to tear their way out of their tents Ooh. and flee the campsite while inadequately dressed for heavy snowfall and sub- sub-zero temperatures. So they ripped open their tents and yes. escaped, yes. probably naked. Yes, close to. Well, not probably not naked because there are in sub-zero oh, temperatures, but still not adequately clothed. Yeah. Okay. After the group's bodies were discovered, an investigation by the Soviet Union authorities determined that six had died from hypothermia, while the other three showed signs of physical trauma. So the bodies were found. All nine bodies were found. Wow. Yes. One victim Wait, had a fracture. What year was this? Nineteen fifty-nine. Right. So it was like Same sixty year years ago. Yeah, sixty years ago. Yeah. One victim had a fractured skull. Two others had major chest fractures. Additionally, the body of another team member was missing its tongue and eyes. Yeah. What? The investigation concluded that an unknown compelling force had caused the deaths. Numerous theories have been put forward to account for the unexplained deaths, including animal tracks, hypothermia, avalanche, infrasound-induced panic, military involvement, or some combination of these. Okay, so we're going to the background. In 1959, a group was formed for a skiing expedition across the northern Urals in Sverdlovs Oblast, Soviet Union. Igor Dilatyov was a 23-year-old radio engineering student at the Ural Polytechnic Institute, now the Ural Federal University, and was the leader who assembled a group of nine others for the trip, most of whom were fellow students and peers at the university. Each member of the group, which consisted of eight men and two women, were experienced grade two hikers with ski tour, ski tour experience and would be receiving grade three certification upon their return. At the time, this was the highest certification available in the Soviet Union and required candidates to traverse 300 kilometers. The goal of the expedition was to reach Ortorten, a mountain of 10 kilometers on the north side of the incident. This route in February was estimated as a Category 3, the most difficult. So there, it has a list of them all. There's, their ages are between 20 and 38, but most being around 22, 23, 24. There's one person who was 38, the rest are around 23, 24. Okay. Um, Interesting. Yeah. One of them left the expedition early due to illness... Due but to what? Illness, but then died in 2013 due at the age of 75. Okay. Expedition. The group arrived by train at Ivdel, a town at the centre of the northern province of Zvrlost Oblast, in the early morning hours of the 25th of January 1959. They then took a truck to Vizhai, a lorry village that is the last inhabited settlement to the north. While spending the night in Vizhai, the skiers purchased and ate loaves of bread to keep their energy levels up for the following day's hike. On the 27th of January, they began their trek towards Ortorten from Vizhai. From Ortorten? On the 28th of January, one of the members, Yuri Yudin, had suffered from several health elements, including rheumatism and a congenital heart defect, turned back due to knee and joint pain that made him unable to continue the hike. The rest of the remaining group of nine people continued the trek. Diaries and cameras found around their campsite made it possible to track the group's route up, up to the day preceding the incident. 
On the 31st of January, the group arrived at the edge of a highland area and began to prepare for climbing. In a wooded valley, they cached surplus food and equipment that would be used for the trip back. Mm. The following day, on the 1st of February, the hikers started to move through the pass. It seems they planned to get over the pass and make camp for the next night on the opposite side, but because of worsening weather conditions, including snowstorms and decreased visibility, they lost their direction and deviated west up towards the top of Kalatsakal. When they re- realised their mistake, the group decided to stop and set up camp there on the slope of the mountain, rather than moving 1.5 kilometres downhill to a forested area, which is, would have offered some shelter from the events. You, from the elements, sorry. Yudin postulated that Dyatlov probably didn't, did not want to lose the altitude they had gained, or he had decided to practice camping on the mountain slope. So they made a mistake... Mistakes have been made. Yes, and they're like, oh my god, I'm up, we're at the side of the mountain where we shouldn't be. Yeah. They're like, so the fuck it, we'll just camp here. Mm. Which they shouldn't have done. No. No, because they're saying that if they had gone back down the mountain, they would be in a forested area which is warmer and be yeah. more protected from the snowstorm. So was it the older person who was leading this? No, oh. the older person was not the leader. Oh, okay. The leader was another dude named Simeon. Yeah. Yuri was 23. Not Yuri, sorry. Igor was 23. Mm. Yeah, and he was the leader. Search and discovery. Before leaving, Dyatlov had agreed he would send a telegram to their sports club as soon as the group returned to Vizhai. It was expected that this would happen no later than the 12th of February, but Dyatlov had told Yudin before his departure from the group that he expected to be longer. When the 12th passed and no messages had been received, there was no immediate reaction, as a delay of few days were common with such expeditions. On the 20th of February, the relatives of the travellers demanded a rescue operation and the head of the institute sent the first rescue groups, consisting of volunteer students and teachers. Later, the army and the mili- the army, the army and the militia forces became involved, with planes and helicopters being ordered to join the rescue operation. On the 26th of February, the searchers found the group's abandoned and badly damaged tent on Kyolatsakal. The campsite baffled the search party. Mikhail Sharavin, a student who found the tent, said the tent was torn, half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. Mm-hmm. Investigators said the tent had been cut open from the inside. Eight or nine sets of footprints left by people who were wearing only socks or a single shoe or were even barefoot could be followed, leading down towards the edge of a nearby woods on the opposite side of the pass, 1.5 kilometres to the northeast. However, after 500 metres, these tracks were covered with snow. At the forest edge underneath a sub- under a large Siberian pine, a popular in popular parlance is called a cedar, the, the searchers found the visible remains of a small fire. There were the first two bodies, those of... Oh, my God, these are long names. <laughs> Hirovonshenko and Doroshenko, shoeless and dressed only in their underwear. Ah. The branches on the trees were broken up to five metres high, suggesting that one of the skiers had climbed to look for something, perhaps the camp. Between the pine and the camp, the searchers found three more corpses. Dyatlov, Komogovora, 
Gorova, sorry, and Slobodin. You're doing pretty good at pronouncing those names. They're really hard. Who seem to have died in poses suggesting they were attempting to return to the tent. They were found yeah. approximately at distances 300, 480, and 630 meters from the tree. Finding the remaining four travelers took more than two months. They were finally found on the 4th of May under four meters of snow wow. in a ravine 75 meters further into the woods from the pine tree. Those of Three of those four were better dressed than the others, and there were signs that those who had died first had their clothes relinquished to the others. Do you, do you reckon one of them, like, just killed off the others? Yeah, but that person would have died too. Yeah, like they ended up dying. Well, three of them were, were very were well dressed yeah. because they'd stolen the clothes off the other bodies. Mm. Mm. Anyway, um, Benina was wearing Korovonchenko's burned, torn trousers, and he and her left foot and shin were wrapped in a torn jacket. Mm. Investigation. My bet is that was that ever solved? No, no, no. My bet is that yeah, I reckon that was a fight. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I reckon there's some bad blood going on. Mm. And yeah, bit of beef, accidental mm. death, crack, we've killed them, mm. let's kill the others. Yeah. yeah. A legal inquest started immediately after the first five bodies were found. A medical examination found no injuries that might have led to their deaths, and it was eventually concluded that they all had died from hypothermia. Bullshit. Slobodin had a small crack in his skull, but yes! was, not, was, was not thought to be a fatal oh. wound. <laughs> An examination. How'd it get there? <laughs> Yeah. There is theories, and we'll get into the theories. Yeah, okay. An examination of the four bodies, which were found in May, shifted the narrative as to what occurred during the incident. Three of the ski hikers had fatal injuries. Sabot Brunois had a major skull damage. Mm. Both Dubina, Dubinina and Zolotarov had major chest fractures. According to Dr. Boris... Zorozdeni, Dr. Boris, <laughs> the force required to cause such damage would have been incre- extremely high, comparable to the force of a car crash. Yeah. So that was a car crash. Yeah, who the fuck did that? <laughs> Notably, the bodies had no external wounds associated with the bone fractures, as if they had been subjected to a high level of pressure. Mm. However, major external injuries were found on Dubinina, who was missing her tongue, eyes, part of the lips, as well as facial tissue, and a fragment of her skull. Okay, so besides the fragment of skull, the other stuff could probably be cooked up and eaten. Yeah, but why would you eat an eye? Why wouldn't you just eat, like, like muscle from an arm? I don't know. Like, why gross. eyes? No, eyes are gross. Eyes are just jelly. They don't <laughs> taste like anything. They have no well, look, nutritional maybe, value. Maybe some animal took the eyes. But why? No, but that requires some level of intellect. Right. So no, I'm going to take the eyes. Like, why would an animal just go for the eyes? Why wouldn't the animal go for the other parts of the body which it knows are nutritious? Mm. Like, what is the logic behind eyes? Yeah. Yeah? She was also had extensive skin maceration on the hands. It was claimed that Dudubanina was found lying face down in a small stream that ran under the snow and that her external injuries were in line with putrefaction in a wet environment and were unlikely to be associated with her death. Okay. She's so just rotting. It was, she's just rotting, yeah. but faster because yeah. she's in a string. Exactly. Yeah. Which is fair enough. Yeah. Um, there was, so the tongue was missing? Yes. And lips? Lips, tongue, eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but if she's face down in the stream, running water across her face, yeah. and she's been there for like four months, yeah. it makes sense. 
Really? I reckon. Well, if you've got a tongue hanging out. Erosion. Someone cut it off. (laughs) Ate it. There was initial speculation that the indigenous Mansi people had attacked and murdered the group for encroaching upon their lands. But investigation indicated that the nature of their deaths did not support this hypothesis. Only the hyper's footprints were visible and they showed no sign of hand-to-hand struggle. Although the temperature was very low, around negative 25 to negative 30 degrees Celsius, with a storm blowing, the dead were only partially dressed. Some of them had only one shoe, while others had no shoes or wore only socks. Maybe one of them, like, just flipped out during the night and started attacking the others and they all fucking fled. Who knows? Some were wrapped, found wrapped in snips of ripped clothing, which seemed to have been cut from those who were already dead. Journalists reporting on the available parts of the inquest claim that it states six of the group members died of hypothermia and three of fatal injuries. There were no indications of other people nearby on Kolot Sakal apart from the nine travellers. The tent had been ripped open from within. The victims had died six to eight hours after their last meal. Traces from the camp showed that all group members left the campsite of their own accord on foot, so they weren't dragged away. Yeah. To dispel the theory of an attack from the indigenous Mansi people, Dr. Boris stated that the fatal injuries of the three bodies could not have been caused by another human being. Really? Because the force of the blows had been too strong and no soft tissue had been damaged. So in order to have have injuries that bad coming from a human, you need to see some sort of soft tissue right. injury. So then how little is that chest broken and stuff? Let me get into the theory. Oh, okay. Release documents contain no information about the condition of the skier's internal organs. And there were no survivors. Mm. At the time of the verdict, it was that the group members had all died because of a compelling natural force. The inquest officially ceased in May 1959 as a result of the absence of a guilty party. The files were sent to a secret archive. On the 12th of April 2018, the remains of Semon Zolotarev were exhumed upon the initiative of journalists of the Russian tabloid Komsomolzakaya Pravda. 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 Contradictory results were obtained. One of the experts said that the character of the injuries resembled a person being knocked down by a car, and the DNA analysis did not reveal any similarity to the DNA of living relatives. What? What? The DNA analysis... Read that again. So, look, the injuries look like the person was knocked down by a car, and the DNA analysis did not indicate any similarity to the DNA of living relatives. This person adopted? Well. In addition, it turned out that the name of Semyon Volotarev is not on the list of buried at the Ivanosko University. Nevertheless, the reconstruction of the face from the exhumed skull agrees with the post-war photographs of Semyon, though journalists expressed suspicions that another person was hiding under the name Semyon Volotarev after the war. What? Who is the Zem- Semyon Volotarev then? Yeah. Who is this person? Mm-hmm. The, Dodgy. the region was closed to expeditions and hikers for three years after the incident, but is currently accessible. In February 2019, CNN announced that the Russian authorities were reopening the exp- investigation, although only three possible explanations were being considered. A s- avalanche, a snow slab avalanche, or a hurricane. The possibility that when a whole slab, like, I assume so, it just goes. Poof. Yeah. The possibility of a crime has been completely discounted. Really? Mm. 
related reports. A 21-year-old Yuri Kuntsevich. What? Kuntsevich. <laughs> you heard what? that right. What? Yeah. Who later became the head of the Yukatering-based... Yukaterinburg-based Dyatlov Foundation attended five of the hikers' funerals. He recalled that their skin had a deep brown tan. Hmm. Another group of hikers, about 50 kilometres south of the incident, reported that they saw strange orange spheres in the sky to the north on the night of the incident. Similar spheres were observed in in Ivdel and adjacent areas continually during the period from February to March 1959 by various independent witnesses, including the Meteorology Service and the military. However, these sightings were not noted in the initial investigation in 1959, and the various independent witnesses only came forward years later. Mm. So various independent witnesses came forward years later about random orange spheres they found in the sky on the night of the incident. That's... Why would you come... Why would you bring that up years later? Yeah, exactly. Anyway, aftermath. In 1969, Sverdlovsk writer and journalist Yuri Yariovi published the novel Of the Highest Degree of Complexity, inspired by the incident. Yarovoy had been involved in the search of Dyatlov's group and at the inquest as an official photographer during both the search and the initial stage of the investigation, and so had insight into the events. <laughs> you right. <laughs> the book was written during the Soviet era when details of the accident were kept secret, and Yarovoy avoided revealing anything beyond the official position and well-known facts. Yarovoy had been involved in the search of Dietlov's group and at the inquest as an official photographer during both the search and the initial stage of the investigation, and so had insight into the events. The book was written during the Soviet era, when details of the accident were kept secret, and Yarovoy avoided revealing anything beyond the official position and well-known facts. The book romanticised the accident and had a much more optimistic end than the real events. Only the group leader was found deceased. Uh-huh. Yarovoy's <laughs> colleagues say that he had an alternative vision, versions of the novel, but both were declined because of censorship. Since Yarovoy's death in 1980, all his archives, including photos, diaries, and manuscripts, have been lost. Oh. Funny that! <laughs> it's alright, don't you? Like... Sorry, funny that. <laughs> They've been They've lost. been lost, considering yeah. the Soviet Union didn't end until 1994. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They've been conveniently lost. Anatoly Gushchin. What? Anatoly Gushchin. <laughs> Gushchin. Summarized his research in the book The Price of State Secrets is Nine Lives. Some researchers criticized the work for its concentration on the speculative theory of a Soviet secret weapon experiment, but its publication led to public discussion stimulated by interest in the paranormal. Indeed, many of those who had remained silent for 30 years reported new facts about the accident. One of them was the former police officer Lev Ivanov, who led the official inquest in 1959. In 1990, he published an article which included his admission that the investigation team had no rational explanation for the incident. He also stated that after his team reported that they had seen flying spheres, <laughs> he then received direct... Oh, wait, do they mean UFOs? No, flying spheres as in balls. And they're orange. Right. And they're flying. So UFOs. No. UFOs. Well, they're under fire. Under yeah, well, yes. They, yes, UFOs in terms of the definition of the word UFO, yeah. but they're not like flying saucers. Okay. 
As in, they're not like what everyone thinks when you think No, but UFO UFO. doesn't mean flying saucer. No, it doesn't. It's unidentified flying object. object. Yes. So it could be the spheres. Yes. After stating that his team reported they've seen flying spheres, he then received direct orders from high-ranking regional officials to dismiss the claim. In 2000, a regional television company produced a documentary film, The Mystery of Dyatlov Pass. With the help of the film crew, uh, Yekaterinburg writer Anna Matavieva published a fiction documentary novella of the same name. large part of the book includes broad quotations from the official case, diaries of victims, interviews with searchers, and other documentaries collected by the filmmakers. The narrative line of the book details the everyday life and thoughts of a modern weak woman, an alter ego of the author herself, who attempts to solve the case. Hmm. Very good. Hmm. Despite its fictional narrative, Matavaya book remains the largest source of documentary materials ever made available to the public regarding the incident. In addition, the pages of the case files and other documentaries in photocopies and transcripts are being gradually added, gradually published on a web forum for enthusiastic researchers. The Dyatlov Foundation was founded in 1999 at Yekaterinburg with the help of the Ural State Technical University, led by Yuri Kuntsevich. (laughs) (laughs) The the foundation's stated aim is to continue investigation on the case and to maintain the Dyatlov Museum to preserve the memory of the dead hikers. Hmm. In July 1st, 2016, a memorial plaque was inaugurated at Sulamskmis in Ural's Perm region, dedicated to Yuri Yudin, the sole survivor of the expedition group who died in 2003. So there was a survivor? Yeah, but he left before they even got to the pass. Right. He left like two days before. Oh. Because, yeah, How convenient. No, because he had a congenital heart defect, yeah, which caused well. his joint pain. I said that. Were you not listening? Yeah, of course I was listening. You know, like, listening to things, there's a lot of information for me to take in. I'm more of a visual person, which is bizarre that I'm doing a podcast. Yes. Because and you listen to podcasts too. I do listen, but I listen more to drown out my thoughts so I can go to sleep. Yeah. If I actually well, I've listened to my favourite ones that have really caught my attention. I've listened to over and over again, probably four or five times, mm. to actually make sure I get the information. In. Yeah. I really suck at mm. you know, um, audio processing, like getting mm. information into my head. I'm, I'm very much a visual person. I have trouble with it if there's a lot of other background noise. I, my brain gets confused about what to pay attention to, oh, yeah. so then I don't pay attention to any of it. Yeah, it's not even that for me. Yeah. I just suck at listening. Well, this bit's interesting. The theories. The theories. The theories. The also, interesting bit. But I'm also interested in ordering us. Well, food. can you listen to my theories first? Because yeah, that's the interesting it's part. It's nearly eight o'clock, and food places were still. Okay, fine. Order food. Get my mess. So we're into the interesting part. So theories. Theories. First one is avalanche. Yes. The theory that an avalanche caused the hikers' deaths, while initially popular, has since been questioned. Reviewing the sensationalist Yeti hypothesis, see below. Hi, what? Hypothesis. The Yeti <laughs> hypothesis. See below. Ameri- see below. See below. Uh, see, see, below. See, see below. Yeti. Yeti. American skeptic author Benjamin Radford suggests as more plausible that the group woke up in a panic and cut their way out the tent, either because an avalanche had covered mm. the entrance to their tent or because they were scared that an avalanche was imminent. Better to have a potentially repairable slit in a tent than risk being buried alive under tons of snow. 
Yeah, possible. Mm. They were po- poorly clothed because they had been sleeping, ran to the safety of the nearby woods where trees would help slow oncoming snow. In the darkness of night, they got separated into two or three groups. One group had made a fire, hence the burnt hands, while the others tried to return to the tent to recover their clothing, since the danger had already passed, apparently passed. But it was too cold, and they all froze to death before they could locate their tent in the darkness. At some point, some of the clothes may have been recovered or swapped from the dead, but at any rate, the group of four whose bodies were most severely damaged were caught in an avalanche and buried under four metres of snow, more than enough to account for the compelling natural force that the medical examiner describes. Dubonina's tongue was likely removed by scavengers and ordinary predation. Mm. I don't know about that. Mm. Evidence contradicting the avalanche theory includes the location of the incident did not have any obvious signs of an avalanche having taken place. An avalanche would have left certain patterns and debris distributed over a wide area. The bodies found within 10 days of the event were covered in a very shallow layer of snow and there had been an avalanche and had there been an avalanche of sufficient strength to sweep away the second party, these bodies would have been swept away as well. Mm -hmm. This would have caused more serious and different injuries in the process and would have damaged the tree line. Over 100 expeditions to the region were since held held since the incident. None of them have ever reported conditions that might create an avalanche. Mm -hmm. A study of the area using up-to-date terrain-related physics revealed that the location was entirely unlikely for an avalanche to have occurred. The dangerous conditions found in other nearby area, which had significantly steeper slopes and cornices, were observed in April and May, when the snowfalls of winter were melting. During February, when the incident occurred, there were no such conditions. An analysis of the terrain, the slope, and the incline indicates that even if there had been a very specific avalanche that circumvents the other criticisms, its trajectory would have bypassed the tent. It had collapsed laterally, but not horizontally. Mm-hmm. So it had been squashed, but it hadn't been moved. Okay. Yeah? Dyatlov had an ex- was an experienced skier, and the much older Alexander Zolotarov was studying for his master's certificate in ski instruction and the mountain and mountain hiking. Neither of these two men would have been likely to camp anywhere in the path of a potential avalanche. Mm, yeah. Hmm. Footprint patterns leading away from the tent were inconsistent with someone, let alone a group of nine people, running in panic from either real or imagined danger. In fact, all the footprints leading away from the tent and towards the woods were consistent with individuals who were walking at a normal pace. Yeah. I am literally literally right now picturing someone basically holding them at gunpoint and walking walking them away. Yeah. Yeah. In the repeated like, get up right now. Yeah. Do not put on your clothes and walk, walk out. Yeah. yeah. In the repeated 2015 investigation by experienced investigators of the Investigative Committee of the Russian Federation. Sometimes <laughs> did you just say investigative? Investigated. On request of the families, confirmed the avalanche with a number of important details added. First of all, the ICRF investigators, one of them who was an experienced alpinist, confirmed that the weather of the night of the tragedy was very harsh, with snowstorm and temperature falling below negative 40, which wasn't really considered by the 1959 investigators who arrived at the scene of the accident 
week later, when the weather had much improved and any remains of the snow slides settled down and had been covered by, with fresh snowfall. The harsh weather at the same time played critical role in the events of the tragic night, which have been reconstructed as follows. On the 1st of February, the group arrives at the Colette Seikil Mountain and rises a large nine-person tent, so it's one tent for all nine people, mm-hmm. on an open slope without any natural barriers such as a forest. On the day and a few preceding days, a heavy snowfall continued with strong wind and frost. The group traversing through the slope and digging in the tent into the snow weakens the snow base. During the night, the snowfield above the tent starts to slide down, pushing on the tent fabric. The group wakes up and starts evacuation in panic. Some of the attendees were able to put warm clothes on, some didn't. All escape through a hole in the tent fabric. The whole group goes down the slope and finds this place perceived as safe from the avalanche only 1,500 metres down at the forest border. Four of the group, only in their underwear and pyjamas, camp at a, a, at a small fireplace they started at the forest border. Their bodies were found first and confirmed to die of hypothermia. Three alpinists, including Dietlov, attempted to climb back to the tent, possibly to get sleeping bags. They had better clothes than those at the fireplace, but still quite light, and their footwear was incomplete. Their bodies were found at various places, ranging 300 to 600 metres from the fireplace, in poses suggesting they fell down of exhaustion while trying to climb in deep snow in extremely cold weather. The remaining four, equipped with warm clothes and footwear, were apparently trying to find or build a better camping site in the forest further down the slope. Their bodies were only found 70 metres from the fireplace, under several metres of thick snow, with traumas indicating they fell into a snow hole formed by a stream. The bodies were found after two months. Hmm. 70 metres from the fire isn't... Very Not much, far, no. You probably would be able to see the fire from where yeah. they were. Yeah, it's just odd that they yeah. would just die there. Yeah. yeah. According to the ICRF investigators, the factors contributing to the tragedy was extremely bad weather and lack of experience of the group leader in such conditions, which led to selection of a dangerous camping place. After the snowslide, another mistake of the group was to split up. Rather than building a temporary camping place down in the forest and trying to survive through the night. But weren't a couple of the campers experienced? Yeah, but not obviously not that experienced. There were there were so there's three levels they said mm. of like hiking experience. They were level two. Mm. After they completed this hike, they would be level three. Right. So they're not really that experienced. They're reasonably experienced, but, not, but not complete f- noobs. No, they're not noobs, but they're noobs enough to select that camping site. Mm, I don't know. I don't buy it. You don't buy it? No. Then why did they camp there? I don't know because that person made them. Okay, let me keep going. After the snowslide, another mistake was the group was to split up rather than build a temporary camping site down the f- in the forest and trying to survive through the night. Negligence of the 1959 investigators contributed to their report creating more questions than answers mm. and inspiring numerous conspiracy theories. Theory two: infrasound. Another hypothesis popularised by Donny Ishar's 2013 book Dead Mountain is that wind going around the Kolatskil mountain created a Karman vortex street which can produce infrasound capable of inducing panic attacks in humans. Apparently. According to Ishkar's theory, 
The infrasound generated by the wind as it passed over the top of the Hochulatal mountain was responsible for causing physical discomfort and mental distress in the hikers. Hmm. Ishkar claims that because of their panic, the hikers were driven to leave the tent by whatever means necessary and fled down the slope. By the time they were further down the hill, they would have been out of the infrasound's path and would have regained composure, but in the darkness would be unable to return to their shelter. Yeah, but again, they didn't. there's no evidence that they actually fled their tent. Like, no, because really. they walked. They, yes. It was a walking pace, exactly. right? The traumatic injuries. Just, I don't think if you're like that anxious and like, shit, we got to leave. You would walk. That you would go, let's just trot in a normal walk. place. Yeah, yeah, in a normal pace. Yeah. The traumatic injuries suffered by three of the victims were the result of them stumbling over the ledge of the ravine into the darkness landing on the rocks at the bottom i don't buy that either that's yeah. that sounds a bit too i've never heard of infrasound causing panic attacks in humans i've never heard of that oh, really? before no nah. like it just sounds so far-fetched to think that it's some sort of because i looked it up infrasound is sound that is below the human threshold of hearing uh, so it's like it's dull. below yeah. 20 hertz yeah. Um, so it's we stuff that we can't hear, but apparently it can cause feelings of like not dread, but like it's like it's uneasy. Uneasy. I, yeah. I, no, I believe that that's a thing, but yeah, again, I just don't think that people would be like Let's waking up in the middle away. of the night and just like tiptoe away. Like, but at the same time, it doesn't make sense that they would rip open their tent and then just walk and away and not it. put their clothes on. Yeah, like, like it wouldn't be that freaking frantic, like all of them. Yeah, that they didn't put on some more clothes. Yeah, I mean leave. the land avalanche one kind of makes sense because if the, if but there's a snow, a, if, it's not a spot that's known for avalanche. No, but so. like their their thing about the avalanche in the 2015 one was not so much an avalanche but a snow slide. Yeah, yeah. So a snow slide came up to the edge of the tent. They can't get through that edge of the tent because the snow snow's there so yeah. if they cut it open the snow will come in yeah so they cut open the other side yeah. they walk away to evacuate then realize holy fuck we're cold we're gonna die three of them try to two, three of them try to make a fire three of them try to crawl back the other however many steal their clothes and then fall in a ravine and die yeah no i don't get that either you don't think that's right either no it's still i still think you'd have time You've got enough time to go right we can't cut that side of the tent let's cut the other side i still think people would gra- at least grab their clothes let not necessarily have put time to put them away. on straight away but at least you know grab a few things and yeah. run as you would right yeah yeah okay third theory military tests <laughs> speculation exists that the campsite fell within the path of a soviet parachute mine exercise okay. this theory alleges that the hikers woken by loud explosions fled the tent in a shoeless shell-shocked panic and found themselves unable to return for supply retrieval after some members froze to death attempting to endure the bombardment others commandeered their clothing only to be fatally injured by subsequent parachute mine concussions there are indeed this is ridiculous <laughs> there are indeed records of parachute mines being tested by the soviet military in the What's area a parachute mine? i don't know i'm assuming it's a mine that's thrown from a plane by a parachute so. you can be okay there are indeed records of parachute mines being tested by the Soviet military in the area around the time the hikers were there. Parachute mines detonate while still in the air, rather than upon striking the Earth's surface and produce signature injuries similar to those experienced by the hikers. Heavy internal damage with comparably less external trauma. 
The theory coincides with reported sightings of glowing orange orbs ah, floating or falling in the sky within the general vicinity of the hikers. Can I tell you what a parachute yep. mine is? A parachute mine is a naval mine dropped by an aircraft by parachute, from an aircraft by parachute. They were mostly used in the Second World War by the Luftwaffe <laughs> and initially by the Royal Air Force, uh, RAF, Bomber Command. Frequently they, are, they were dropped on land targets. Yeah, so according to this, they detonate in the air rather than detonating on on an object. Does that make well, sense? Yes, yeah, so, so blast effects. These mines were attached to parachutes to act as blast bombs. When detonated at roof level rather than on impact, the aerodynamic effects of the blast were maximised. Yeah. Instead of the shock waves from the explosion being cushioned by surrounding buildings, they could reach a wider area with the potential to destroy a whole street of houses in a 110 yard or 100 meter radius and windows being blown in up to a mile away yeah wow yeah yeah um but the only notable there's notable people killed by parachute mines is like one person the crooner al boldy was killed by a parachute mine which exploded outside his flat in german street london during the blitz german street london german but spelled j-e-r-m-y-n German. Okay, that's weird. Yeah. During the Blitz on 17th of April 1941. Mm, okay. Yeah. All right. Okay, so it's okay. quite effective by being exploded. Yeah. In the air. The theory coincides with the reported sightings of glowing orange orbs floating or falling in the sky within the general vicinity of the hikers potentially military aircraft or descending parachute mines. This theory, among others, uses scavenging animals to explain Stupanina's injuries. That's long had her tongue and yeah, her eyes right. taken out. Some spe- the eyes. Yeah, but I don't understand yeah. the eyes bit. Some speculate that bodies were unnaturally manipulated due to characteristic liver mortis markings discovered during autopsy. What is a liver mortis? Liver mortis... Or postmodern lividity, or hypostasis, or sugulation is the fourth stage and one of the signs of death. It is the settling of blood in the lower portion of the body postmortem. So if you've ever seen, ever seen any photo of a dead person, the top of their body goes like yellow, and the bottom of their body goes blue, like a bruise. Ah, yeah, okay, yeah. So like radiant almost. Yeah. Okay, so go back to this. Some speculate the bodies were unnaturally manipulated due to the characteristic liver mortis markings discovered during autopsy, as well as burns to hair and skin. Photographs of the tent allegedly show that it, that it was apparently erected incorrectly, something the experienced hikers were likely to have done. Similar theories engage the test and testing of radiological weapons and is partly based on the discovery of radioactivity on some of the clothing, as well as the bodies being described by relatives as having orange skin and grey hair. However, radioactive dispersal would have affected all of the hikers and the equipment instead of just some of it, and the skin and hair discoloration can be explained by the natural process of mummification after three months of exposure to the cold and wind. <clears throat> However, the initial suppression of files regarding the group's disappearance by Soviet authorities is sometimes mentioned as evidence of a cover-up, but the concealment of information regarding domestic incidents was standard procedure by the USSR, and therefore far from peculiar mm. and by the late 80s all Dyatlov files have been released in some manner okay have they though mm. theory 4 how <laughs> many theories are there's there there's a lot really pa- par- yeah a lot. there's a lot really so lot. for 5 
There's five, and then there's another section. Okay. Okay. Claudia is looking very mad at us. <laughs> Paradoxical undressing. What? International Science Times posited that the hiker's deaths were caused by hypothermia, which can induce a behaviour known as paradoxical undressing. Oh, in which, you think you're hot. Yes, yeah. in which hypothermic subjects remove their mm. clothes in response to perceived feelings of burning mm. warmth. It is undisputed that nine of the, six of the nine hikers died of hypothermia. However, others in the group appear to have acquired additional clothing from those who had already died, which suggests that they were sound enough mind to try and add layers. So I suppose their theory is that the other people did have clothes on, but were dying of hypothermia, so they took them off, and then they died. No. <laughs> they were taken from them. You just, you just like to think that everyone's evil. No, I don't like to think that. It's true. It's not true. I'm not evil. <laughs> Claudia's would, not evil. Oh, she would take someone's clothing if she needed it. <laughs> She's not so evil. would you. Yeah, if I needed it. Yeah, well, there you go. Life and death situation. Exactly. But the you thing is, I would, kind of, I would kind of wait for them to be dead first. I reckon they did. Waited for them to be yeah. dead first. Yeah, I mean, like, the other option would be, like, I don't understand why these people didn't just, like, form, like, a huddle like penguins. Yeah. Like, why wouldn't you just form a huddle like penguins and rotate like penguins do? Because it's gay. It doesn't matter. You're all going <laughs> to die. <laughs> No, no, okay, no, no, no. theory five. No, no, no. Pseudoscientific theories. Pseudoscientific. <laughs> In this. 2014, Discovery Channel special Russian Yeti, the killer lives, explored oh, the theory Lord. that Dyatlov group was killed by a mink. Or a, a what? A mink. Or a Russian Yeti. No. So a Russian Yeti is called a mink. M-E-N-K. Really? Yep. The show begins with the premise that the skier's injuries were such only that a creature with superhuman strength could have caused them. The episode concluded that with there being no solid evidence for its claims, however, in the interview with the two members of the search party who got onto the scene first, they claimed they saw footprints larger than those of, those of a human, and that those footprints were never included in the official Soviet government report. And additionally... That after months of trying to gain access, the Russian documentary narrator Maria finally got access to a classified Soviet military document regarding the investigation of the missing hikers, in which the start date of the investigation was the 6th of February. The, the hikers were reported missing almost 10 days later on the 15th and 16th of February, which could indicate a Soviet military cover up operation. The documentary also claims that the howl sound they've recorded during their cave and forest expedition does not belong to any known animal species. Wow. Dumb. Dumb. That's dumb. <laughs> I'm sorry. They just pay two random people who were on the search yeah, party to say that they were big footprints. Yeah. Pretty much. Okay. Other. Keith McCloskey who has researched the incident for many years and has appeared in several TV documentaries on the subject, travelled to the Dyatlov Pass in 2015 with Yuri Kunskovich of the Dyatlov <laughs> Foundation and a group. At the Dyatlov... Kunskovich. At the Dyatlov Pass, he noted, there were wide discrepancies in distances quoted between the two possible locations of the mm. snow shelter where Dubinina Kol- Kolovatov, Zolotarev and Theotobod Brignols were found. One location was approximately 80 to 100 metres from the pine tree, where the bodies of Doroshenko and Korovodenshenko were found, and the other suggested location was so close to the tree that anyone in the show's snow shelter could have spoken to those at the tree without raising their voices to be heard. 
The second location also has a rock in the stream where Dubinina's body was found and is more likely the location of the two. However, the second suggested location of the two has a topography that is closer to the photos taken at the time of the research in 1959. Hmm. Mm. The location of the tent near the ridge was found to be too close to the spur of the ridge for any significant buildup of snow to cause an avalanche. Furthermore, the prevailing wind over, blowing over the ridge had the effect of blowing snow away from the ridge, from the edge of the ridge on the side where the tent was. This further reduced any buildup of snow to cause an avalanche. This aspect of the, of the lack of snow on the top and near the top of the ridge was pointed out by Sergei Sogren in 2010. Ms. Klosky also noted Lev Inanov's boss, Iveni Ivegni Oshev, deputy head of the investigative department, was still alive in 2015 and had given an interview to former Konerveno prosecutor Leonid Proshkin in which Oshkev <laughs> stated... <laughs> I'm just watching in fascination like... <laughs> stated that he was arranging another trip to the past to fully investigate the strange deaths of the last four bodies when Deputy Prosecutor General Orokov arrived from Moscow and ordered the case to be shut down. Mm, interesting. Evgeny Oshkev... Oshkev... <laughs> Oshkev, yeah, Oshkev. also Oshkev. stated that his interview with Leonard Proshkin, that Klinov, head of the, Klinov, head of the prosecutor's office, was present at the first post-mortems in the morgue and spent three days there. Something Oshkev regarded as highly unusual and the only time in his experience that it had happened. Donny Ishkar, 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 also investigated and made a documentary about the incident, evaluated several of the theories that are deemed unlikely have been discredited. One, they were attacked by Mansi or other local tribesmen. The local tribesmen were known to be peaceful mm. and there was no track evidence of anyone approaching the tent. Exactly. So no. No. In the bin. In the bin. They were attacked and chased by animal wildlife. No. There were no animal tracks. And I the group could that. not have abandoned the relative security of the tent. Yeah. No, I don't no. believe that at all. High winds blew one member away. <laughs> and the others attempted to rescue the person. What? A large experienced group would have not behaved like that. And winds strong enough to blow away people with such force would have also blown away the tent. Yeah. Like what? It just picked up a half-naked person and blew them away. Yeah, no. 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 An argument possibly related to a romantic encounter mm. that left some of them only partially clothed yeah. and it led to a violent dispute. I reckon. About okay. this, Eshar states it is highly implausible. By all indications, this group was largely homogenous. Homogenous? No. Harmonious. It was largely homogenous. <laughs> That's a word we use at work. I'm sorry. I, read, I, read, I saw the H and the O-ness at the end. And homogenous. No. Largely harmonious. And homogenous. sexual tension was confined to platonic flirtation. We and don't crushes. know that. They had diaries. Oh, I don't care. It doesn't mean that they. There yeah, were they no care. drugs present, and the only alcohol was a small flask of medicinal alcohol found intact at the scene. Yeah, it doesn't. Ugh, it the doesn't group have to be had drug induced. It doesn't have to be yeah. alcohol. The group had even sworn off cigarettes for the expedition. Furthermore, mm. a fight could not have left the massive injuries on that one body had suffered. So their their thing about the fact. 
that there's no visible outside trauma yet they had practically broken their chest which is a thing that they've only ever seen in things like car accidents Mm. doesn't indicate that there was a violent dispute no I don't know no but there's no injuries like that there's no blood there's no gashes there's no broken noses nothing like that I don't think I think that they're right in saying that that's I've had a fractured sternum before yeah from a car accident yeah and even though it was a steering wheel impact, I still had no visible. Yeah, impact and that's the what they're saying about that's. What well, why sa- couldn't a punch do that? Yeah, because a punch is usually to the face and usually no, break you can a punch nose. someone in the chest. But why would? But instinctively, if you're going to fight someone, instinctively you go for the face. Yeah, but shit happens, and sometimes you. But only one punch to the chest. I don't think that's possible, no, and I don't think it's possible that it'd be hard enough to break a sternum. I reckon one punch. To I reckon the chest, you could nah. punch someone's chest and break a sternum. Nah, yeah, not not healthy young people. No, who are experienced and strong. I don't, I don't think so. I reckon you could. Okay. The last section of the article is in popular culture. Ooh, good. I like the popular culture. Books. Okay. Popular interest in Russia was revived in the 1990s at the wake of Gushchin's 1990 novel, The Price of State Secrets is Nine Lives. In 2000, a regional television company produced a documentary film with a follow-up novella by Anna Matav- Matveyenko. Anna Kirinova wrote a journal-style novel based on a fictionalised account of the incident in 2005. In 2015, Russian band Kowan released the album Sorni Nai, which attempts to reconstruct the events that led up to the incident. The incident came to wider attention in popular media outside of Russia in the 2010s. Mm-hmm. Antala Gushin and the Surprise of State Secrets at Nine Lives in 1990. The Giotlive Path Incident, aka Devil's Pass, a film directed by mm. Rennie Harlan, was released on the 28th of February 2013 and tw- August 23rd in 2013 in the US. It follows five American students retracting the steps of the victims, but being a work of fiction makes several changes in describing yeah, the course. initial events, e.g., inverting names of victims. <laughs> The incident figures prominently in the 2012 novel City of Exiles by Alec Novella Lee. Russia's Mystery Files, Episode 2, The Adyatlov Pass Incident, mm. was made by National Geographic in, th- in 2014. Mm. The 2015 Polish horror video game Kyotlat is inspired by the Dead Mountain Incident in which the player goes to Dyatlov Pass in order to trace the steps of the lost expedition and begins to uncover the true cause of the hiker's deaths. Interesting. In Criminal Minds, Season 13, Episode 21, Agent Matt Simmons makes the reference to the incident while chasing a serial killer who hears the hum. Oh, the hum is terrifying. What was that in? Oh, criminal Minds. Ah. And then just some notes. Can I go into the hum? I think yeah. it's short. So this is something that... So according to the Criminal Minds episode, the serial killer hears the hum. The hum, as in hmm, yeah, the hum, yeah. is a phenomenon or collection of phenomena... Phenomenal. Do, 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 do. Phenomena. No. Or a collection of phenomena involving widespread reports of a persistent and invasive low-frequency humming, rumbling, or droning noise that is not inaudible to all people. That's how I feel about Claudia's 
crowd that yeah, she does. Yeah, it's like a hum. Oh, when yeah. wet Piper or Dusty look at her, and she goes, mm. yeah. But like it just, it's a low hum, and it you just can't rumbles. Get it out of your head. No, and it just rumbles through me. And sometimes, especially when I'm trying to sleep, I think I can hear it when I. It's probably yeah. not happening. Yeah. Yeah, you. The you hums. Don't look at her. She's about hums. She's about to hum. No, she's asleep. Yeah, but okay. Hums have been widely reported by national media in the UK and the US. The hum is sometimes prefixed with the name of a locality where the problem has been particularly publicised, e.g. the Bristol hum or the Tau hum. It is unclear whether it is a single phenomenon or different causes have been attributed. In some cases, it may be a manifestation of tinnitus. The essential element that defines the hum is what is perceived as a persistent, low-frequency sound often described as being comparable to that of a distant diesel engine idling or to some other similar low-pitched sound for which obvious sources, e.g. handheld appliances, traffic noise have been ruled out. There is also a number of audio reproductions of the hum available on the web, as well as at least one purported recording. Other elements seem to have been significantly associated with the hum being reported by an important proportion of hearers, but not all of them. Some people hear the hum only or much more inside buildings compared with outdoors. Some perceive vibrations that can be felt through the body. Earplugs are reported as not decreasing it, which means indicates it's coming from the inside. Yeah. Yeah, a study into the towel hum indicated that at least two percent could hear it. Each hearer at a different frequency between 32 and 80 hertz, yeah. modulated from 0.5 to 2. Similar results have been found in an earlier British study. It seems to be possible for hearers to move away from it. Was one hearer of the towel hum reporting its range was 48 kilometers? There are approximately equal percentages of female and male hearers. Okay. Age does not appear to be a factor. With middle people. Sorry, age does appear to be a factor, with middle-aged people being more likely to hear it, okay. which makes sense because people who are younger can hear high-pitched noises mm. a lot better than people who are older because over time, those cells that you can hear high-pitched noises die right. as you get older. Yeah. Is that why low-pitched noises like annoy me more? Yeah, probably. And that's probably why the middle-aged ones get more annoyed by the hum because yeah. they have that range better. Hmm. In 2006, Tom Moyer of the then Massey University in Auckland believes he has made several recordings of the hum. His previous research using simulated sounds that indicated that the hum was at 56 hertz. There is scepticism as to whether it exists as a physical sound. In 2019, the head of audiology at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge, David Bowgley, said he believed people's problems with the hum were based on the physical world about one third of the time and stemmed from people focusing too keenly on innocuous background sounds the other two thirds of the time. His current research focuses on using psychology and relaxing techniques to minimize stress, which can lead to a quieting and even removal of the noise. Mm-hmm. Jeff Leventhal, a noise and vibration expert, has suggested cognitive behavior therapy may be effective in treating those affected. It is a question of whether you tense up to the noise or are relaxed about it. The CBT is shown to work by helping people take a different attitude. (laughs) History. There has been little mainstream attention. Only a handful of articles have been published in scientific literature. But it has been reported worldwide. Okay. Possible explanations for the hum. I find that so fucking terrifying. Yeah. Just having this sound that you don't know where it's coming from and you can't get rid of it. Like, oh my God. That's Mm. terrifying. Yeah. Okay. I swear I've had it before. 
Mechanical devices. Although an obvious candidate, given the common description of the hum sounding as a diesel engine, the majority of reported hums have not been traced to a specific mechanical source. In the case of Kokomo, Indiana, a city with heavy industry, the origin of the hum... That's where I wanna go. Kokomo. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know why Regret needs a song. What's a song? I don't know why that particular town needs a song. I don't know. The Beach Boys said so. The origin of the hum was thought to have been traced to two sources. The first was a 36 hertz tone from a cooling tower at the local Daimler Chrysler Chrysler casting plant. And the second was a 10 hertz tone from an air compressor intake at the Haynes International plant. After those devices were corrected, however, reports of the hum persisted. Oh my god, Claudia was staring down the microphone. Yeah. Two hums have been linked to mechanical sources. The West Seattle hum was traced to a vacuum pump used by the Cal Portland to offload cargo from ships. Ships. After After Cal Portland replaced the silences on the machine, reports of the hum ceased. Likewise, the Wellington hum was thought to have been due to a diesel generator on a visiting shift. Ship. What? Saying shift. (laughs) So it's a ship. 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 A thirty-five degree, thirty-five hertz hum in Windsor, Ontario, is likely to have originated from a steelworks on the industrial zone of Zug Island near Detroit. One hum on Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, was suspected of originating at a Santee Cooper substation almost two miles away from the home of a couple who first reported it. The substation is a home to the largest transformer in the state. One local couple sued the power company for the disruption and the hum was causing them. The hum was louder inside the house than out, in part, they believe, because the house vibrated in resonance to the 60 hertz hum. The volume of the hum was measured up to 64 decibels in the couple's home. That's pretty hot. Like, that's a reasonable amount of noise. So why are we on the hum? Because the hum was... The hum was in an episode of Criminal Minds that that a serial serial killer could hear that the... So in the episode in Criminal Minds, the serial killer couldn't, killer could hear the hum. Yes. In that episode, the in, the investigator mentioned the Dyatlov Pass. Why? Because it was something to do with the episode. I don't know. And then I found the hum, and the hum is terrifying. <laughs> so we're going into the hum. So do you, maybe the people in the past heard a hum, the hum, uh, the hum, and they, and they freaked said, out. Yeah. Possibly, who knows? Without their clothing. I just think the hum is terrifying, and it's a it's a semi small article, so we okay. might as well read it. And this is what happens when I what, read Wikipedia articles. What what happens to everybody? Like, what the fuck is the hum? Well, it's probably it's pretty much why we started this yeah um, podcast as well because Wikipedia loops are totally yeah. a thing. And it's then like, after all, and this. then you keep looking at them, and then you freak yourself out, and you can't sleep. Yeah, that's what I used to do. Dusty, don't do it. Don't look at it. It's a suggested diagnosis of tinnitus, a self-reported disturbance in the auditory system, is used by some physicians in response to complaints by the of the hum. Tinnitus is generally internally generally narrated internally by the auditory and nervous systems with no external stimuli. While the hum Do you get tinnitus? I do. Yeah, I do. Too. I get it if I'm at Derby and I don't put my ear plugs in. I just get it randomly. I do get it around. I get it. I also get it when I'm anxious. Oh. I can tell that I'm anxious if I get tinnitus. It's very strange. Hmm. But I mostly get it after derby, after being in an environment where I'm blowing whistles all the time. And but yeah, hmm. uh, yeah, I get it randomly. Yeah, but I guess yeah, I do get it more if it's 
because I've been at a loud venue or something. The hum, while the hum is hypothesized to be a form of low frequency tinnitus, such as the Venus hum, which is a thing apparently. <laughs> I think it's like a vein thing. You can go into it. If you look yeah. at the hum, you can find the link to the <laughs> Venus hum. <laughs> Venus as an V-E-N-O-U-S, not Venus as in V-E-N-U-S. Uh, okay. Like Venus, like yeah. veins. Some report it's not internal, being worse inside their homes than outside. However, others insist that it is equally bad both indoors and outdoors. Some people notice the harm only at home, while others hear it everywhere. Some sufferers report that it is made worse by made worse by soundproofing, e.g., double glazing, which serves only to decrease other environmental noise, thus making the hum more apparent. Tinnitus is known to be exacerbated by allergens, which are regional and seasonal. Due to blockages, inflammation, and pressure in the head, taking allergy medicine may help to mitigate the hum. (laughs) Spontaneous autoacoustic emissions. Human ears generate their own noises, called spontaneous autoacoustic emissions. Various studies have showed that 38 to 60% of adults with normal hearing have them, though the majority are unaware of these sounds. The people that who do hear these sounds typically hear a faint buzzing or ringing, especially if they're in otherwise complete silence. Research looked at the Tau hum considered autoacoustic emissions as a possibility. Huh. I don't know our own ears made noises. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. Because there's shit going on yeah, in the ears. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. Sometimes it weeds me out. Mm. Animals. One of the possible causes of the West Seattle hum considered was that related to the midshipman fish. What? Otherwise known as a toad fish. Mish, 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 mish. Midshipman fish. Mish, mish, mish. A previous hum in Sausalito, California, also on the west coast, was determined to be the mating call of the male midshipman fish. However, in that case, the hum was resonating through houseboat hulls and affecting the people living on the boats. So the fish were making their calls. <laughs> the fish calls were going through the boats and people heard the hum mm. in their houseboats. In the West Seattle case, the University of Washington researchers determined that it would be impossible for any resounding hum transmitted via tanker or boat hulls to be transmitted very far inland, certainly not far enough to account for those reports. The Scottish Association for Marine Science hypothesised that the nocturnal humming sound heard in Heights, Hampshire, in the UK, could be produced by a similar sonic fish. The council Sonic fish. Sonic fish. The sonic in, in quotation marks. Yeah, yeah. The council believe this is to be unlikely because such fish are not commonly found in inshore waters of the UK. As of February 2014, the source has not been located, although the sound has now been recorded. A case of hum in a house reported in the Daily Telegraph's letters from readers on the 20, 18th of January 2018 are proved to be wasps in a hollow wall. Oh my lord. Imagine thinking, oh my god, I'm hearing this hum, and then they investigate it, and it's fucking wasps That'd in your house. Terrifying. Ah! Terrifying. But the idea of you just hearing this hum that won't go away is terrifying. Yeah. Like, oh my god, I would freak out. And the fact that it's called the hum is so ominous. Yeah. The hum. The hum. 
our food's being picked up. Yay, food's yeah. on the way. So we should leave it there so we can eat. Yes. Yes. Cool. So what was the, what, how do you pronounce the pass? Dietlov. Dietlov pass and the hum. The hum. Cool. What did you think of, what's your theory about the Dietlov pass? What's your yeah, final I thought? St- I still think, and I could still picture it in my mind, is like literally one of them like just leading away some kind of weapon point, gun point, whatever. But they never found the weapon and all the, all the people died. Where's the weapon? I don't know. They threw it in a stream. But they would have investigated the stream and no weapon was found. <sighs> but how long did it take them to find those extra bodies? Two months. Yeah. So the gun or whatever weapon, knife, whatever, it could easily have been a knife. And people just think, yeah, it's a regular hunting knife. Doesn't mean... Yeah, yeah. but they wouldn't have taken... A, if, if it's not that, they wouldn't have taken a hunting knife with them when they were fleeing the tent. You know what I mean? So finding a hunting knife would have confirmed that there was, like, issues going on, but they didn't find anything like that. Hmm. It's hidden, taken. The government. The government. Yeah. My my bets on the whole, there was a snow slide. They had to cut out one side. They walked Again, away. Why didn't they pick up their clothing? Because they probably couldn't see. It was in the middle of the <sighs> night. Some of the clothing was picked up. Some of them did have shoes. Some of them did have some clothes, but not all of them mm. did. And I do, I do agree that I think yeah, they went and made a camp. They realized three of them realized they were too fucking cold and were gonna die. So they tried to get back to the camp, died of exhaustion and of, of hypothermia. The rest of them took their clothes from them, be like, shit, we're gonna die anywhere, and they're already dead. And then they fell into a ravine and died themselves anyway. No, I, I just don't think it could be all attributed to like human error. I like that. I could. That many people. Yes, that many because people being, being hypothermic, being in a panic, having people die, it's all trauma, yeah. right? can really fuck with your brain. Yeah. If you're having, if you're hypothermic, it, it reduces your cognitive ability. So if you're hypothermic, even slightly, which those people would have been after they put the clothes on, does affect your cognitive ability. Yeah, I get that, but I just don't think, I don't know. Yes, it doesn't make sense that they crawled away from the fire mm. to go back to the tent. Yeah. However, they thought they were going to die. Stay in the fire. They thought they were going to die. Stay in the fire. You're more likely to die on the way back. Yeah, but they are also felt they were probably hypothermic again, loss of cognition, yeah, yeah. and so then they thought they were going to die. Like, yeah, I still think if I was them, I would I would make a fire and then do the penguin huddle. Yeah, and rotate whoever's That's on the gay. outside. Doesn't matter. I don't give a shit. Yeah. I'm going to die. <laughs> I'll do. I'm being sarcastic. I'll do whatever I need to do. Yeah, I'm being sarcastic. I know you are. And besides, there were two women and seven men. Well then, um, maybe yeah. I don't know. Jealousy. People are weird. Yeah, people are weird, but I don't think that everything. I don't think that everything has to have malicious intent for it to be weird. Not everything's a murder, Scout. <laughs> it totally is. Not everything. Yes. Everything is a murder. No. Everybody enjoys a little bit of murder. No, they don't. Not yes. everything is a murder. Said. Yes, everybody enjoys a little bit of murder. No, not everything yes. is a murder. Yes, it is. Not every incident's a murder. <laughs> we should go. <laughs> so we can eat our dinner. Yes. Thanks, Frank. Thank you for <laughs> listening to me go on about stuff. Was that good? Mm-hmm. You don't sound convinced. It's not that creepy. It's not creepy, but it's still creepy about how we don't know what really happened. Yeah. 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 
I still like the idea of like I still kind of like the idea of the Russian military experiments and it kind of explains yeah. some random yellow exactly. So what orbs. were the fucking orbs? The the parachute mines being yeah, I know, but if they the weren't that sky aliens, well, <laughs> okay, <laughs> it could have been anything. Aliens. We'll never know. Really, we'll never know. And that's yeah. I still can picture someone literally cracking the shits in the middle of the night and making them walk it. Gunpoint, knife point. But where's the gun? Oh, where's you know. the weapon? Maybe there wasn't one. Then how did they do it? Pretend. Look at my pretend gun and everybody get out of the tent and walk. I would have been like, fuck off. Again, like they weren't running. The footsteps don't suggest they were running. No. If that was a landslide, you'd probably pick up no, your but, shit. No, and but they were run. saying it's a snow slide, not an yeah. avalanche. So a snow slide is less like a sl- the snow slid into their tent, yeah. but it didn't sweep away the tent, mm. which makes sense. Because they'd be like, oh my god, the snow is encre- encroaching in our tent. We have to get out of here. Let's that's get why they wa- that's that's why they grab some clothes and then walk oh, out. They all you think they would all have grabbed clothing. It yeah, just, but they might not no, have been able to. As people camping literally in the snow, I really don't think they would have been that stupid to not think to pick up some clothing, like all of them. I think something was not right. But it doesn't always have to be murder. I'm not saying it was murder, I'm just saying You're saying it was gunpoint. Right. Well no, I'm just saying something isn't right. I also, it's also sus that, like, the Soviet Union is, like, covering shit up and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what do you expect So they could have the taken Soviet the gun. Union? The weapon. But why would the Soviet Union do that? I don't know. What's the, it, what's on their, their land? Re- yeah, but what's the reason? What's the political reason well, behind because that? Because they don't want their land to be seen as people murdering. Well, people. Yes, their land is being seen as people going fucking missing. Hi. Yeah, they'd rather it just be, you know, accidental and yeah. sinister. They would cover that shit up. And now we're going to stop talking about them because they're going to come give us. Oh, who don't give a shit? They're not in <gasps> the Soviet Union. I give a shit. They're not, right. the, they're not the Soviet Union Russians anymore. Russians don't get me. The Russians aren't the Soviet Union Russians anymore. Russians don't get me. All right. Thanks they're not everyone. the Soviet Union anymore. It's okay. Stop rambling. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. We'll <laughs> see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.